0: Hey everybody, welcome to episode number three of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris, I'm joined with Steve, my regular co-host, and we're going to lead off the new year. This will come out on January 2nd with this podcast. So today, we're talking about some 2017 items, including the 2017 Boston Field. We're gonna talk a little bit about New Year's resolutions at the end, but the meat of our conversation will be an interview today with the one, the only, Mr. Paul Terranova who's joining us. Welcome Paul. Thank you. Thank you for having me Steve and Chris. We'll do a quick intro on Paul in a second but first we're going to kick it off with like we like to do some relevant news and about 10 days or so ago as we record here they released the 2017 U.S. field for Boston which includes all of the American Olympians from Rio except for Amy Hastings Craig as well as Meb who will be doing his 25th marathon And Jordan Hasse will be making her debut. So what do you think of that field, Steve? We got Rupp in there making his Boston debut. Shalane coming back to Boston, her home course.
1: I I think it makes for an exciting race. And Americans are relevant. I mean, it has been a long, long time since we've had a number of Americans that are relevant. There is a little bit of a, a sort of a bad taste in the mouth about spring races this year with the announcement that we talked about a couple weeks ago of the sub-two-hour assault and how that has stolen from some of these other fields and maybe from London. That could have been a classic showdown between Bekele and uh, Kipchoge. But I think I'm most excited to see uh, really how Meb handles what will likely be his last seriously competitive marathon, I think, and how Rupp will handle his uh, debut in a downhill, have to get it just right. Marathon. Those are going to be two storylines: the sort of the young buck versus the old, the old wily veteran, and see how that plays out.
0: It's also interesting that Rupp is debuting his his sort of road debut or or open debut outside of the Olympics in. Boston, which is not a paced race. So he didn't go to London where he could have been in a paced race. So he's gonna be in a in a race. And of course you've got the Wiley Meb and also some Africans that are gonna be used to that. And Rub Rupp, I guess, had that in the Olympics, but it's kind of an interesting choice to not go for a paced race.
1: Yeah, I I think it's uh I think it's the right move. I think the difficulty of getting a race dialed in just right with all the different variables. We talk about that all the time in our coaching, and it's, it's hard to handle all the variables, and Boston is renowned for a lot of different variables. The course is downhill with a lot of uphill in it. It's got weather conditions that will absolutely affect the race no matter what, whether it's really cold or a wind in your face or a wind at your back, or last year where I'm standing on the starting line, I mean, on the finish line and the weather is 50 degrees and you guys are starting on the starting line and it's 70 degrees and there's a 20 degree change in weather in the 26 miles between the two places. So all these variables are so hard to control and over a 26 mile distance in a two hour plus race, um, I think, I think they're really smart, both Alberto and, and Galen in focusing on a race. And remember, though, Galen has gotten very good at race tactics on the road, on the trail, on the track his 10 K tactics are he he's, he's a, he's a master right. and, and he's trained with the master of all masters in Mo So I, I, I'm not too worried about, no. about him being competitive and racing. Well, I just think it's a, I, and I also think it's a ballsy move. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm all for it.
0: Well, he raced well in Rio certainly and in LA. So yes. he, he's got a track record already in the marathon. Now on the women's side, obviously we've got Shalane and Des, which will be two of the favorites, I would imagine, depending on the international field that comes. But Jordan has say making her debut, you know, she burst on the American scene as a high schooler in two thousand eight at the trials, and then hasn't really lived up to expectations since then in either the five K the fifteen hundred, the five K or the ten K. Is this a desperate move?
1: Uh I don't know. I think that um, I think it probably is. Uh, I don't hold any any. I don't think there's good chance that she'll run. I'd be surprised if she runs under two thirty. I think if she runs over to under two thirty, that will be phenomenal. I mean, mechanically, she's built for it. She doesn't bounce. She's really economical and efficient, but. Obviously, Alberto thinks that the other direction is not... She can't move back down to the 15 or the 8, which is really where I would like to see her. I think if she went back to that, she might be able to come back to the 5 and 10 and be more competitive. So that's your point, I think, and I think that that's pretty darn accurate. Um, It's telling about how long they think her career will potentially be you know but jordan's really private we don't know about her boyfriends right. we don't know about her relationships we don't she's really really private and done a really good job of doing that i'm excited to see her run but i'm not the only thing the real thing she has going for her is that she has alberto's alizar as her coach and that is that is a wild card to end all wild cards the man is always prepared
0: boston's unforgiving for the women if you don't have a good day it's can, it's gets very lonely out there with that separate start. So and you know, Shalane's... It's a bold choice.
1: Shalane's hungry. She went in last year with big plans and was it last year or the year before? It was the year before.
0: It was the year before and Jep too right. stole it from yes. her. Yes,
1: and uh, I think that she's extremely hungry. But Desi almost stole a win on that course too. So the women's race is going to be a barn burner the gar- of just having the two Americans that are going to yeah. be in it plus whoever else
0: they decide to bring it'll be exciting we look forward to it they haven't yet announced the international field they always announce the americans first in boston so we'll see we can talk about it again once we see who see who they're up against Uh, and it should be mentioned that meb this will be his 25th marathon he has said he will retire after new york which will be his 26th at the age of 42 so he's got the the 42ks matched with his age and the miles matched with the number of marathons he'll, he'll and I, finish.
1: I, I have a sneaking suspicion it'll be his um, kissing babies and waving to the crowds race at New York, New York City. I might be wrong, but I think if you're going to get a big push out of Meb, he's had great success on this course. He stole it a couple of years ago and one of the most emotional and amazing races in the U.S. marathoning history. Um, I think it's going to be fun. Paul, have you run Boston before? I have. Oh, what was your experience of that race?
2: <laughs> well, my first one was 2002 and then followed it up again in 2003. And, uh, 2002, I had just moved to Houston in 2001, gotten out of the military and got back in, into running. So broke up with my girlfriend that I, I moved down to Texas for and got back into running. Uh, training with Houston Fit there at, at Memorial Park mm-hmm. and qualified at the, at the Houston Marathon in 2002 and then ran my first Boston Marathon. I should also note that my first marathon ever was in 1995, St. Louis Deaconess Marathon. That was my first one, qualified for Boston, and people asked me, hey, why don't you go run Boston? And at the time, I had no idea <laughs> the importance the <laughs> of Boston. I said, why would I go to Boston and go run a marathon? And not until years later. Utter I, noob. Yeah, did I realize the significance of qualifying for Boston? And then right at that time, I said, okay, here I go. I'm going to start training again, run a great Houston marathon, which I did, qualified, and, and then went and ran. So And loved it, enjoyed it. Uh, for the first time. And I tell people all the time who are running their first boss, uh, Boston, enjoy it, soak it in. And if you want to go and try for a PR or a certain time, leave that for your second one or third one.
0: That's good advice. Sound, <laughs> we've sound all, advice. we all made that mistake. <laughs> some of us have made that mistake. I'm raising my hand. Okay. So, quick introduction on Paul. Paul is a member of our running community. He is the now two time Masters. USATF Masters Runner of the Year for trail. The last couple of years, and has most recently become famous for his trail pursuits of 100 plus miles or so. Uh, but also has had a great career as a triathlete and runner, as we've already mentioned. Paul's a member of our community, trains with us. For those that 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 uh, aren't in our community and don't know Paul's name, you'll get to know him over the course of this interview. So. As we dive in, Paul, we talked already about your first Boston and your first marathon in 95. Tell us about your running debut. How did you get into running? What's your connection, initial connection to the sport?
2: My connection to running came in college where I was a lightweight rower. And just to get from campus down to the boathouse, it was probably three miles away And either as a freshman, you either ran or you rode your mountain bike if you had one. And most freshmen at Cornell didn't have cars with them. So it was okay. Run downhill and go to practice in the afternoon. And then if you wanted to make it back to the dining hall before it closed and eat, you had to run back (laughs) or or mountain bike back. Uh, So so that was my introduction to running and. And the lake is down low, and campus is up on the hill. So obviously, you get some downhills going down, and then running up. So that was my first intro, and turned out, hey, at the end of four years of doing that, spring or fall, winter, and and spring, you end up being a pretty pretty good runner at the end of that.
0: Plus, you're rowing, so there's some aerobic work. Plus, you're rowing, there. yes,
2: and <laughs> and weightlifting in the in the winter and the
1: fall and the spring. Now, am I correct in remembering that you went to a pretty prestigious and famous running high school? Did you go to Christian Brothers? I did. And aren't they some of one of the best one of the best track and field and cross country programs in all of Jersey? Am yes. I, am I correct in that? Yes, they have. Our, a our mutual friend John Watson was a an alumnus of that school, and he seems to talk as he always loves to just go off at the mouth about all things high school. I think he, uh, he, he talked about that with you. Uh, how, did that, how did that experience, uh, you, how did you dodge that bullet, being in high school and, and, and not having to run for that cross-country track team? That's a darn good question
2: because going into high school, I played soccer as a kid and played basketball in the winter, but I never really grew until high school. And really until college. So I was always undersized soccer player, undersized basketball player. So I got, I think I made my seventh grade high school basketball team. I got cut from the eighth grade team, didn't make it. Soccer, I loved playing, didn't make the traveling team. And my mom played tennis and she said, <laughs> hey, why not give tennis a try? And so I did. And that was, that was my sport. In, in high school and we had as good as our cross country team and and Tom Heath was a coach there, that it never appealed to me, but tennis did. And we had just as good of a tennis program as, uh, as we had and still have a track and field and cross
1: country team at CBA. So you've just been avoiding, you were avoiding running for a long time <laughs> of your life. It just kept <laughs> creeping up on you and creeping up on you and creeping up on you, huh? It
2: did. It did. And uh, upon graduation from college and commissioning in the Army, when I got to Fort Leonardwood, Missouri, I I met my classmates who were from all over the U.S. And one was a rower at Boston College, Brian Hackenberg. And he and I and one other guy, Steve Policastro, decided to train for our first marathon and picked up a book at the library (laughs) and picked out all right whether it was 15 weeks or 20 weeks or 24 weeks and just knocked down the miles and got it done along with our physical training for uh officer basic course and uh turned out that st louis i think it was october-ish of 1995 was a beautiful day and
1: sunny and it was great i loved it so you graduated from cornell in what year 1995 awesome and then uh, commissioned into the U.S. Army? Army. Army. And uh, tell us a little bit about that decision and sort of is that a way, was that a, something you always knew you wanted to do is be in the military or was it part of uh, getting through school and financing? So how, how does that, I've known you for a long, long time and your military background is a very strong part of your esprit de corps and your ethos. So tell us a little bit about how that came about a little bit of
2: everything that in the middle of high school i wasn't really sure what i wanted to major in in college didn't really know and so my parents took me to take a battery of tests to kind of find your strengths and weaknesses and what professions might be apt you know given my skill set and things that i I like to do and so military was one of them Uh, any kind of design whether it be naval architecture or engineering were also things that hit, and so I looked at, hey, what are also some ways of funding some out-of-state out tuition? Uh, where to a an state, Ivy League school. Yeah, to an Ivy League <laughs> school, and that was my REACH school, right? I also looked at Vermont, looked at Lehigh, mm-hmm. um, Worcester Polytech, which was in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and then state school, uh, Rutgers Un- University. So I had the list of all those, and then ways of diversifying my college experience, and then also, a way of partially funding it was ROTC and I pursued both Naval and Army ROTC and got offered both three-year scholarships for those and chose Army just... I felt, even though I love being on the water and grew up around it, it, it just seemed like Army had less of a active duty commitment at the time after college. So I kind of hedged it a little bit for that and i was really glad that i did because it did between engineering and rowing which i just walked on as as an athlete um whereas today most college rowers are recruited oh heavily back then i think we might have had four or five freshmen that had rowed at the high school level and then the rest were just you know active guys who did stuff but picked it up really, really quickly and and learned.
0: So tell us more about your military career. You, from what, Obviously, you went through an officer commissioning. From what I understand, you were a sapper, if I'm using that word right, basically a front-line engineer, so to speak, that would often go up and prep for armies or, or battalions or whatever, maybe to move into spaces. So tell us about that career, how it evolved, and then maybe some takeaways you pulled from it that you may have used later in your athletic career. Sure.
2: So at, uh, at the officer basic course, uh, they put us through what's called those that wanted to a ranger in indoctrination program, right? For those that wanted to go to ranger school, which is a precursor to go into a light infantry unit or a light engineer unit that's going to support um, light infantry. And so I went through that program Unfortunately, I got assigned to Fort Hood, Texas, which is <laughs> a, a mechanized uh, tanks and Bradley fighting vehicles. And so priority went to those uh, guys at the time because only, only the, the men officers were invited to go to ranger school. And um, so priority went to them. So I had to wait a couple of years, in fact, until I was a captain to go to ranger school. But in the meantime, when I was at Fort Hood, Texas, uh, the two, two, 299th Engineer Battalion, when I got there, as part of the 2nd Armored Division, and we re-flagged to the 4th Infantry Division shortly after I arrived, which was December of 1995. And um, yeah, got involved actually in Task Force 21, which was— fielding and testing a lot of the digital battlefield um, items and equipment that today we take for granted right when you see the um, tents with all of the video screens and the drone feeds and all of this on this digital battlefield back then it didn't didn't exist and so you had to test it field all this equipment uh reorganize then go test it in in the field so our our unit was protected from the bosnias and the kosovo's and going to the sinai and things like that because we were testing all this whereas my my roommate at the time brian hackenberg who um i ran that marathon with he was going because he was in first cav division so he he got the bosnias and the kosovo's and all that and i was here in uh in Fort Hood and coming down right to Austin and go party on 6th Street and come <laughs> back. So uh so that led into right then the sapper leader course that you mentioned, right? The sappers, they were the miners and the explosives experts and it comes from the French word sap, which means to dig and they would dig the trenches up to the up to the forts and put a big bomb there and blow it up. So there's a similar to Ranger School called the Sapper Leader Course that's held at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. And the difference is that you go through as a unit. So you take people from your your unit, go through this month long training course, and then you go back to the unit. So you're this intact (laughs) element, whereas Ranger School, you have people from all over the country and all over the world come train together for 62 days, but then they go back to their own units. So I got to lead and be the officer in charge for uh, the unit that I brought from my battalion. And then I brought a scout for my supported company team, um, a medic, a commo guy. So I had a combined arms team there to go through that training at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. So so that was that was really great. And then I didn't get a chance to go to ranger school until I was at back at Fort Leonard Wood for the officer advanced course, which is now called the captain's career course. So that was a piece of cake after going (laughs) through ranger school (laughs) and all this other stuff. And then I had four years of experience. And so you go through there and it's like, hey, all right, this is great, let's keep going.
0: Were you ever deployed?
2: No, no, I missed, in fact, the morning. So after Fort Leonard, Missouri, the second time in grad school, then I was at Fort Bragg, North Carolina and I was picking up my orders to get off of active duty and clear post the morning of nine 11. So wow. it was one of those moments of, well, God, is this the sign that I'm meant to stay or am I meant to continue on the path? Cause I had a, a job lined up already in uh, Houston and had all of my equipment and gear cleaned and ready to turn in. And it took us a while as a nation to figure out what our, uh, um, approach was going to be and who was going to be stop lost and kept in. Um, and so, uh, yeah, they never, they never called me back up to active duty. And then I fulfilled my full eight year commitment from ROTC and then resigned my commission. I think about must've been 2013 or no, 2003.
1: Yeah. Pretty amazing. So tell me how that you uh when i first met you you were you had you were a triathlete so i think 2002 or so when we first met um i remember you were dabbling in the trails a little bit but you were originally as you as you got done with that first marathon you got into triathlons talk a little bit about that and you were a pretty pretty substantial triathlete in your in your days weren't you thank
2: you thank you and even before that, following the marathons, I started adventure racing in mm-hmm. Houston. So a couple of my training partners in Houston Fit and uh, the advanced training program that, that was their Boston qualifier, they invited me to come out and be on their co-ed team for that. And so we did anywhere from sprint distance to 24-hour races. So got in some mountain biking, used my land navigation skills as the navigator for that team. And then right, just endurance, right? Being out there kayaking or mountain biking at eighteen hours, nineteen hours uh and and longer. <laughs> and I remember right setting up tether systems to pull some of my teammates. <laughs> uh, so then I knew and I had always had a Bug in my ear saying, "Hey, triathlon's going to be that next step." In fact, when I was at Fort Bragg, one of my classmates there, he was into triathlon and took me out on some bike rides, and um, said, "Hey, you'd be a great, a a great triathlete someday." And and sure enough, when I got to Houston, I got to training for that, and that's where I met. My wife, Meredith, at the at the little pool in Bel Air, Texas, training <laughs> for my first triathlon in the fall of 2002. And so I've got triathlon to thank for beating my wife. And um, so, yeah, so when we moved here in 2000, actually my first triathlon, yeah, was 2002, was Cinco Ranch in Katy, Texas. Just a little sprint triathlon. And I think the most remarkable thing about that was I forgot my bib number and race belt <laughs> in uh in t2 and i had to run back to go get it about a half mile of then run out uh so i know i didn't set any land speed records but i had a lot of fun and i also biked the ms150 as part of the boss marathon because they fall within about a week of each mm-hmm. other so that first year 2002 i ran the boss marathon and i think i biked the MS-150 for the first time a couple days later. And then uh, in 2003, I think I did it opposite. I think I did the MS-150 the first weekend and then ran Boston the following weekend. So I was always combining events, running and and biking. You were always making projects. (laughs) Making projects, that's right. (laughs) What was
0: the hardest part of the move into triathlon? Because had you been a swimmer at all?
2: I had not been a competitive swimmer. So that was certainly my weakness was getting in the pool. But I had always been in the water and water skiing and swimming and uh boogie boarding on the on the Jersey shore. So I was always comfortable in the water, but never with a pair of goggles. Hmm. So it was just getting in there and finding a good masters program to swim in. And fortunately in Bel Air, Texas, there was a good a good uh masters program um all year round that meredith and i would swim
0: at i met you in 2004 Mm -hmm. shortly thereafter when you had moved to austin and i met meredith as she was my first triathlon swim coach and i remember paul being there doing laps alongside our little class with the video camera (laughs) (laughs) basically watching his stroke Already at that point, a couple of years into, into <laughs> converting to try. So that was my introduction to, to Paul. In addition to having spent many years following you on the roads, I remember watching you videotape yourself in the, at the pool. But you're that kind of pre- preparer. You're, you're somebody, obviously engineering mind, who is always into the details. How did that, and with triathlon, there's a lot of details. Yes. So how did that translate as you grew in the triathlon world?
2: Yeah, I knew at that time when I was videotaping myself, I was getting ready for my first Ironman triathlon, which was Ironman Coeur d'Alene, Idaho in 2004. And then I said, oh, this is is it, I'm in. And so the next year was getting ready for Buffalo Springs uh, triathlon, which is a half Ironman, but also a qualifier for Hawaii Ironman. And so I set my sights 2000 June, 2005, I'm going in all cylinders ready to kick ass and take names. And I did, and I earned my first – that was my first slot to the Hawaii Ironman World Championships was in June of 2005. And uh, here linked up, right, with a a great triathlon community here. Jack and Adams met James Bonney, Patrick Evo, Stefan Schwartz, Uh, Todd Gerlach all these guys who had 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 been there before and and we were all going Desiree Ficker was going as well and so Saturdays were long bike rides Sundays were long runs and in the heat
1: of the of the summer here in Austin and I just totally loved it yeah I don't think people really recognize exactly how amazing the early 2000s through the mid 2000s that how how amazing our triathlon community was in this town absolutely epic yes yeah and getting getting out of
2: town was a piece of cake right once you were really out of the city limits that it was quiet there was not a lot of traffic and these days it's it's hard it's really hard to find quiet roads to go train on that are safe um in fact I was up on Palmer Lane yesterday afternoon and just it's a little bit numbing the amount of traffic that's that's going up and down that corridor and I was like wow I'm almost thankful that I don't train nearly as much on the bike outside as I did back then
0: You can't really you can't do it safely anymore unfortunately So <clears throat> your triathlon and career progressed Simultaneous to that, Meredith, your wife, had started getting into some ultras and that began your transition, or at least you start to look at a new sport, kind of trail running. So talk about that evolution. Sure.
2: Sure. She, she was actually doing ultras when we met in Houston. She was in right Sunmark uh, 50 Ks and 50 miles and doing really well in her age group there and took a couple a couple cracks at the rocky raccoon 100 miler um was wasn't successful the first time but then finished that and then when we moved here went out to western states twice in 2006 and 2007 2006 epically hot year Mm -hmm. and totally cooked herself uh got pulled at, at devil's thumb stuck with IVs and everything like that. So I saw it from the crewing side of a very, very worried spouse and then helping her at the Forest Hill School uh, again in 2007 was really, really dusty and, again, had some breathing uh, problems for that and saw it again, and it was like, oh, to go out there twice and to not achieve what she set out to do and what we set out to do as a, a team was, was really, really hard. Um, but then we decided for her to really just buckle down, get some confidence back, get healthy for one, and then come back again in 2010, and she did sub 24 hours. And that was the end of her 100-mile career because she had her sights set on other things. But in the meantime, right, I had been in that period between 2005 and 2010, I had gone to business school here at night in the evening program and worked full-time and trained a little bit here and there. Took a little bit of a break, but then did Ironman Arizona in November 2008. So I qualified for the 2009 Hawaii Ironman. And uh, so I was staying active. And then as she finished Western States... I got more involved just in some of the longer distance races. 50 miles uh, was the furthest that I had done at that time until Bandera 100K in 2012. So uh, and there was one more trip. There was a Ironman Cozumel because Meredith wanted to do her first Ironman. So she Mm -hmm. was dabbling into my (laughs) space and I was content. I said, hey, I'm I'm kind of done with it. But she talked me into doing one more. That was 2011 Cozumel and I qualified again for Hawaii Ironman 2012. And then I got picked in the Western States lottery uh, a couple weeks later, and then the wheels started turning of, hey, if you get into Western States, you should probably do the Grand Slam of ultra running. Yeah, uh, because, because that's
1: just the next logical thing that's that the anybody next logical would thing. do. No, no, you're. That's absolutely not the next logical thing. You're. You're the. This is the wild man that everybody that ever meets Paul. They think he's such a nice, sweet guy. They don't really realize what we all know. He's batshit crazy. This is pretty much true. So 2012 was an epic year for you. Absolutely. Talk a bit about what what you were what you went into. You had a project, right? You. I use this term project. I mentioned it earlier because I've been helping Paul with his training or portions of his training at, at separate times of the year. But mostly he and I get together once a year and kind of go through the overview of what your year is going to look like. So you've got another person's, person beside yourself and Meredith kind of who is on the outside looking in and making suggestions. And every year you come up with some kind of wild and crazy project. But this one is one that was already pre known and had had a few finishers and a number of finishers. Tell us a little bit about what the grand slam means and what 2012 meant to you and your, and your tra- trail running career. First of all, right. The grand slam of ultra running four of the oldest hundred milers in
2: the U S started with Western States in California, followed in July by Vermont 100 followed shortly by Leadville, Colorado. Uh, Leadville 100 and then Wasatch Front 100 in Utah. So typically all in the span of um, 11 weeks, depending on the year that you do it. Um, and then for me, having tacking on the Hawaii Ironman five weeks after Wasatch was a little icing on the cake. <laughs> and uh, it, it hence, was, hence it was name, risky. was the Grand Kona Slam. that's <laughs> the name. It, <laughs> it was risky because Bandera in January of 2012, that was my first 100K, and wow, that hurt. Mm. It hurt, and my legs hurt like they what had was never the weather hurt that before. Year? It was nice. Nice, year. Yeah, it was pretty nice. It was crisp <clears> and cool. Uh, But I remember the little cabin that we rented had a swimming pool that was obviously ice cold and waking up multiple times in the middle of the night just to go soak my legs because my (laughs) legs hurt so bad. I said,
1: oh, what have I got myself into? Because Western was going to be my first 100. 62 miles to 100 in your debut, and then in the subsequent 10 weeks, doing three more 100 miles. Right, right. Followed up
2: after Western where – I had a pretty good first 62 miles and boy, the last 40 they were hard and they were tough and I suffered. Uh, And I think the photo says it well, there's a finishing line photo that, that Meredith, I think has as her Facebook page um, or maybe it's on her phone that uh, yeah, just a sense of relief to get to the finish line of my first (laughs) hundred, but then to realize, Oh, wow in a couple of weeks, I've got to go back to Vermont and do this all over again. That was uh, a good wake up call. But the good thing is that your legs, once they're sore like that, they're not gonna get much worse. <laughs> they are not gonna get much worse. So just get
1: to that point and keep going. What do you think the adventure racing brought to bear on that experience of what a 100 miler brings? It seems to me those two have so many things in common but I don't know. I'm not an adventure racer. So what, what are, what things help, how do they help prepare you? The things that both
2: adventure racing and triathlon is the planning of the aid stations, right? That ones that you have drop bags and things like that. And you can treat that like a transition and adventure racing is the same way where you, when you're going to transition from kayaking or canoeing to mountain biking. And then from mountain biking to land navigation, land navigation to something else, you have to have your equipment and your nutrition and all of that planned out. And if you have a crew member helping you or not, then that's all part of that. And so between Meredith and her experience, and then my experience, both in triathlon and adventure racing, being able to put all those two together and to really have as simple of a plan as possible, but yet get all the things that you need for that next either segment of your race or just to get you to the next aid station. So that's that's the one thing is that planning of, of what you're going to do and what you're going to need.
0: What was the hardest part about the Grand Kona Slam? You run your first 100, but then you do three more, and the Hawaii Ironman in, a course, in the course of four months. What was the hardest part? Most people look at you and they see this robot who can just basically do anything, but I've gotten to see and see, we've gotten to see some chinks in the armor, some challenges, some struggles. So tell the world a little bit about some of that as you went through that year, the
2: hardest thing. And luckily I did not have to do a lick of it was the logistics of it and the travel arrangements and Meredith, God bless her. Just, I think she got a minor in being a, a travel agent because she (laughs) is so good at it pretty well.
1: It's, it's also in her nature. She She is, she loves it. (laughs) She, she,
2: she loves to have control of that and the logistics and the itineraries and the rental car and where we're going to stay and who's going to do what and who's going to pace and when. And so she just took that on full bore. So really for me, all I had to do was go run, come back here and then get in the pool and do some bike rides, which, a is good for recovery and B was also getting me ready for um Kona. Yeah, Kona in October. Mm-hmm. So it was really beneficial having both of those. And oh by the way, Meredith's really good at right, if you need a toenail taken off or things <laughs> like that, she is the first person with <laughs> clippers ready to go take it off. So uh, I am really, really lucky um, to have that, and then also, right, massage, physical therapy, things like that. Establishing those relationships with those providers that you trust—they know what what your body or should know what your body is like on a baseline, so that they can get you back to that baseline and address any niggles
1: or problems that come about. When, you, when so, you're what doing are two or like three key recovery methods that are in your go-to? to getting between races. So we have many listeners who are running marathons and and maybe running two or three marathons in a year trying to get back to their get it back to their training. We've got a number of people listening who are actually getting into the ultra world and sure. and playing in those fields. So what do you what have you found in your experience that have been the key recovery methods that are your go-tos to get back out on the roads? Yeah, three things. One's going to be light active recovery,
2: whether it be easy swim or an easy bike ride or easy on the trainer. So some light aerobic movements. Uh, Second's going to be getting back in the, in the weight room and doing strength work. So it's, it's going to hurt right. You don't have to do to the full extent that you were, but that stimulus of your muscles is going to help recovery as well. Uh, And then the third thing is massage Um, probably a week or so after, I don't think right away, is always the best thing uh, unless there's, there's somebody there at the finish line, Mm -hmm. which is great just to, just to have somebody, uh, work on your legs. But then shortly after, shortly after when you get back, um, getting a, a massage right to work through all that soreness in there. And then you can get back into some kind of normal training routine. And so it's
1: just get back in it, huh? Get back at it. Get back Just at basically it. Basically, what you're telling us: you don't sit around and eat your bonbons and 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 think about nothing else going on. Is it literally get your get yourself in a pool or on a bike or something like that, and and maybe get a massage a week later. But get out and be active. Get out and be
2: active. Mm-hmm. And I like that. Right. Lot, lots of protein. Right. Proteins that builder for uh, regenerating our... Are, um, are damaged muscle fibers, and so good, clean foods. Of course, you're going to indulge a little bit and things like that, so that's totally fine. <laughs> uh, but then, yeah, really, really good diet is going gonna, is gonna to help that.
0: So let's talk about someone who might be looking at trail transitioning. We have a lot of road athletes in our community, and you know, there's probably more people out there that are listening that are running marathons or doing half marathons on the road. So what tips would you have for a new person coming to the trail For the first time, how do you adapt your training?
2: I think that you can incorporate trail running much like I did that trail running was for me a part of my uh, triathlon training that I would go out to the rogue trail series races on a Sunday because they were on Sundays. And after having been on the bike for 100 miles or 110 miles, 120 miles, that was my long run right? So get 18 miles, 30 K out on the trails as a long run was just phenomenal. So that could be used as well that, Hey, as a supplement or as a replacement for some of your longer runs that, Hey, get out on the trail and do that. It could be some of your easy runs as well, whether it be 40 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, get out on the trail, some softer surfaces, um, some different terrain, and so, and definitely um, see what's out there and see what you're good
1: at. So you've been a member of Dawn Patrol, which is um, the group that I coach on uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays and Saturday mornings. We don't see you much on Saturdays, but we see you occasionally. Talk a little bit about how the roads have helped you prepare for the trails, because you have not jettisoned the roads altogether in your trail preparation, as many ultra runners do seem to do. So, talk a little bit about how important the mix of that is to your training. Yeah, for me,
2: having the the routine and the structure of a regular scheduled group environment to get that base mileage in and that and, and that base training has been fundamental to my success these past, what, five years since I've been doing hundreds. Um, and there's always a, a new uh, rotation of, of <laughs> younger runners that come into the mix, right? There's the, there's the veterans, and Chris is one of them, that that were here and, and we've been here and we've been doing races, but then there's always young people that are coming in that are pushing us and they're eager to learn and they're excited to be here at 5:30 in the morning and uh that helps get me out the door to come here and run with them have them push me and hopefully
1: i'm going to push them too as well that's yeah, really cool we we absolutely love having you it's uh we have a uh basically a, a, a hero in our midst on uh as many tuesdays and thursdays as we can possibly get you we love we absolutely love having you. I think you're really crucial and critical to many of the people that we have in our groups feeling that um, that look how one young man transitioned from sport to sport to sport through his career, found success at every level, but yet seemed to find success, the highest level of success as he aged and grew older. And I love to tell the athletes I coach, I can still get you to PRs if you'll slow down, get out on the roads, do the miles. You'll still do that. And when anybody says, Oh, I'm full of crap. I just point over at you and say, that's not true. Look at this. This is an exact example of how you can get better with age. It's cool.
0: Thank you. So from a trail training perspective, you're obviously competing at a high level, as we mentioned at the top two times masters USATF runner of the year. What are your keys to success on the trail for, for the training side of it?
2: For the training side, for me, for the types of races that I'm peaking for, whether it be Western States or a big 100-miler like Cascade Crest this fall, it's getting out on the terrain as similar to the course as possible. That trying to get out there, whether it be a B-level or C-level race, use that as a training experience for me. Um, and then in preparation for that, that's going to force me to get out on the hills here in town locally, whether it be Ladera, whether it be Far West, whether it be Jester or Lakewood uh, or any of those hills. Mesa is another wonderful one to get out on there, get get the not just the climbing, but the descending. Right. That mm. a lot of these mountain races have long descents that we just don't have that kind of of, of terrain here. So to to get the quads and the hamstrings and the legs in shape for that, it, it really forces me and other ultra runners to get out and do hill repeats here locally. That'll get us ready for our trips out to uh, the race course.
0: You also are known to appreciate the track and keeping some of that speed for the 100-mile distance as well. How does that fit in for you?
2: Yeah, that's where the Dawn Patrol and steve's training right has us on the track we're probably there once a month maybe twice a month but then we also have fart licks and things like that that are on the road and so that kind of stimulus is um helps helps with turnover helps keep it quick uh without a lot of um long mileage you know there's there's lots of ultra runners that are just obsessed about 100 mile weeks and i'm sure there's lots of road runners that are obsessed with (laughs) 100 mile weeks but i'm not one of them right i if you train with one i think his name's brian (laughs) Morton. but anyway (laughs) i think so Uh, (laughs) and he's a phenomenal runner and he's he's come out to pace pace me a bunch of times in fact during during the grand kona slam was uh, he came out to three of those races so we had lots of fun together and beyond Um, that, yeah, the track, the track workout is definitely key. And I think as we get older, I read in Joe Friel's book, fast at, uh, fast after 50. He said, uh, as you're doing those high intensity repeats that when you think that you can do one more don't, (laughs) (laughs) that the risk of getting injured is greater than the benefit that you're going to get.
0: You're also known to do a little heat training. Austin's (laughs) good for it. (laughs) <laughs> as you prep prep for Western States, particularly, you'll have toboggans and long sleeves on in May as it starts to get warm here. Talk about that and how that plays into your race.
2: Yeah, that is an element of, hey, making training as, in some cases, as miserable as possible and getting that element of suffering into your training. So spending time in the sauna, spending time with extra clothes on while you're running is gonna force your body to experience temperatures that it would not otherwise experience and then acclimate towards it and be prepared for it on race day um so spending time in the sauna as i mentioned i know one year when i was training for uh hawaii ironman and i was driving back and forth to dallas for work i would not drive with the air air conditioning on on the way back (laughs) so those are those are ways to to help prepare your body and of course they're not foolproof that there's lots of other elements in the equation that will determine success but it's one thing both physically but then also
1: psychologically to get yourself ready for it so 2017 right around the corner actually by the time we do this it will actually have rung um Tell us a little bit about what you've got on the agenda. I get to see a little preview of it usually before we get to the new year. Um, it had a jumble of a variety of different yeah. things. Why don't you talk a little bit about what you're hoping to, what you're looking forward to in 2017 from a racing perspective, and how that might flex and change, and how you look at that from a global picture? Because uh, one of the things that I love about Paul, even though he runs a lot, a lot of races, he's always a command performance dude. I'm a big fan of those athletes that go after one or two really big races in a year and try to really really seal the deal on those. And while you might run a race after race after race, you're still looking at for that each year one or two command performances. Talk about how 2017 is playing out for you or you're looking forward to it and uh, how that might play. Yeah, 2017, I
2: really thought this this was going to be my fifth year in the Hard Rock Lottery. And I firmly thought that all signs are pointing towards getting picked in, in that December lottery, and I didn't get picked. Mm. And I really didn't have a good backup plan of, hey, what's going to happen? because that, because my goal right is to go run the Rocky Mountain Slam, uh, which is or it, it would be it's hard Rock and then the bear, and then you pick two of the four, uh, Bighorn, Leadville, and Wasatch. So I'd like to do all five of those and I've been saving, the bear and bighorn for the year that I get into hard rock. So, and that would have been right. A great project that I've been looking forward to for years. Unfortunately I didn't get picked. So I'm still formulating what 2017 is going to look like, right? I've done Western the past five years and that's been really the huge focus for their January to June. Uh, so that first part of the year has always been planned and programmed with some with some tweaks and variations to it. So I find myself in a spot of, okay, I've done Western for five years in a row. Maybe it's time to take a break from, from doing that same thing, pushing those same buttons, doing those same races, those same training uh, efforts that I've done. And mix it up and so maybe it's a sign that hey i need some more time in the san juan mountains Mm -hmm. right so i'll put in for san juan solstice 50 which is in june uh there's some other races in the san juans later in the year in colorado that can help so hopefully december of 2017 i can get pulled in the hard rock lottery and then go after the rocky mountain slam as no texan there's no texan that's done the rocky mountain slam by the way so most are from Colorado, Utah, uh, Wyoming, so mountain, mountain
1: states. And you're going to add something to it. There might be. <laughs> there are, yeah, there might be. In typical Terra.: fashion. There might be something uh, oh, on tacked plus. on because October and November
2: are wide open, <laughs> <laughs> right? So.
0: And you're still the only human to ever do the Grand Kona Slam, correct, as, as, as far as we know? That is correct. And that if I'm not correct. mistaken, the fastest Texan to ever run the Grand Slam it's Elf. Right. Yes.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And the ninth fastest time in history
2: still. There you so go. FKD. How nice. is it,
0: how
1: is it that you're a world-class ultra marathoner and you can't get into one of the most important ultra marathons? This is, this is for all of you listening out there when you want to move up and into ultra running, just realize the gods are cruel The running gods are cruel. You don't get to just roll up and get an automatic qualifier like some folks can do for Boston. You got to pay your dues. Here's a man who's been two-time USATF trail runner, Masters trail runner of the year, and he can't even get in and get a special dispensation for getting into the race. So it's it's a brutal world out there, but I think that's one of the things that makes it so special it does it does so start putting in for your
2: lotteries early (laughs) start getting your qualifying races early and right as ultras get more and more popular they've been raising the bar on their qualifying standards so stay abreast of that of what races are getting phased out so that you don't get caught either without a qualifying race or you miss a year because then typically you have to start back over Mm
0: -hmm. so two final things one Give a quick shout out to your supporters. Obviously, you have a great team, including Meredith, who we talked about, but I know you have other companies behind you that you may want to mention.
2: Yes. Yeah, long time. Uh, Hoka 1-1, uh, right, my shoe sponsor. So they've been really, really, and my first my first time in Hoka's was Vermont 100 in 2012 and been a loyal uh, Hoka 1-1 runner since then. Uh, so they've been fabulous. Patagonia, um Makes some of the best apparel in running, and I've been fully thrilled with everything that they've they've put out for me. Uh, nutrition Bonk Breaker, uh, energy bars, um, another great great sponsor, and now they're going all non-GMO in all of their products. So they have have bars, and they also have chews, and then hydration drink as well. Uh, locally here, Think Sports sunscreen, so they make uh, BPA free uh water bottles and baby bottles and then sunscreen they have some of the most safe uh, uh sunscreen out on the market so obviously we spend lots of time in in the sun uh dry mac socks uh I've been wearing dry mac socks since <laughs> since meredith <laughs> meredith was wearing them way way before <laughs> i was and so they've been they've been phenomenal uh i know i'm probably missing people Oral. Uh, IV, right. That's, that's another yep. little hidden gem, uh, for hydration as well. And staying hydrated, um, and keep that electrolyte balance as well. So, uh, pure Austin awesome gym. And we're, we're here at the 410 speed shop, uh, and the rogue running, uh, palace here. So, uh, that's yeah. Getting to the gym is really, really important.
0: Okay. A couple of rapid fire questions and then we'll, we'll wrap it on your interview. So, Pre race food, I know you have a tradition I'm, here. What what is it?
2: Yeah, Dairy Queen Blizzard, <laughs> right? Well, not pre race. Although o- over time, <laughs> I've dialed it down from the medium to the small, and now it's the mini. And it's not Thursday before, but it's more like Tuesday or Monday, <laughs> just to just to get that treat out out of the way early.
0: DQ Blizzard, favorite post race food. Ooh, uh,
2: In and Out Burger, no doubt. Any race in California. Well, what that's about your favorite, we'll
1: your favorite trail, the va- your favorite trail that you've run on? I know that, that's a wide, wide range of places, but there's got to be one that really, really strikes your fancy.
2: Yeah, yeah, getting out on the Western States Trail, just because it's been such a part of not just my running, but Meredith's running as well and telling the stories and going out there for training camp and then race day. Uh, we spent more time on that trail than any other trail in the world.
0: What about favorite Austin trail? Ooh, uh,
2: my favorite is Forest Ridge, so it's off of uh, 360 and uh, part of the Balcones Canyonland Preserve. So uh, Make that's sure you fill where out it, your paperwork. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> fill out your paperwork. Do your do your uh, nature uh, visit for the golden cheek warbler uh, <laughs> and and the black Cat vireo, and then and it's an also a great place to go do volunteer service. And I think that's a great thing that trail running does is a lot of those big hundreds have volunteer service requirements and so i've cleaned up more trash and uh, maintained trail there than any other place
0: and i may not have to ask this but favorite trail race
2: oh my favorite trail race you know i mean the rogue series (laughs) i love coming out because that is just a butt kicker to come out and run three 10k loops uh hard and fast and it's hot And it's warm. So, uh, yeah, that's my, that's my hand, hands down favorite. (laughs) Awesome.
0: Thank you for that. And thanks for joining Paul. We really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me to talk to you. You are an inspiration to many, including our community and certainly to the two of us here at this table. So thank you for joining us. All right, Steve, we close it out with a training tip. It's going to be January 2nd with this, when this podcast gets released. So we'll be getting into the new year. We have some folks that might be out there that are, starting a New Year's resolution to start running in 2017, what would we tell them in terms of both getting started, what do they need to think about, and how do they stick with it?
1: I think the most important thing that people need to do is a really simple thing, and that's to make a commitment to a certain number of days to to really take the habit. So what I usually suggest to people, and this is folks who are maybe walkers who are or going to just walk, or walkers who want to turn in and transition into running, or even runners who maybe have walked away from it for a little while and are getting back at it, and we always seem to get reinvigorated at this time of the year. That's to... Make a challenge for yourself, and I like to usually say 30 days and make a 30-day challenge to walking out the front door with a pair of walking shoes or running shoes 30 straight days. If you do that consistently and make a commitment to the amount of time you stay out, my suggestion is 30 minutes. So 30 minutes, 30 days in a row, it will be very hard if you stick to that plan to stop to, to stop doing it because the residual benefits, it's like taking your medicine. It's like getting out and getting into all kinds of weather and January is going to throw you weather. So when you get those bad weather days or those hot weather days, you've wa- you've made this commitment to getting 30 straight days and you know on the, the 1st of February, you can quit. You can just stop altogether. But if you can get those the first 30 days, my bet is you'll stay with it. Most of these folks who do make New Year's resolutions and don't stick to them, they don't make it to the 30th day. So make it to 30 days, preferably for 30 minutes, and that's walk, run, walk, run if you got to start there. If you're a runner, then make sure you're doing at least 30 minutes a day, every day for the first 30 days. And we're not, I'm not prognosticating or saying you should run 365 days a year. Don't, don't get it twisted. This is as you start a new year, and if you're getting back at this, 30 straight days, make a commitment, something big, hairy, audacious for you individually at that moment, but still doable, manageable, and sustainable.
0: I like it. The other thing I would add is that it shouldn't hurt. Get out there, go at a pace that allows you not to hurt. Most people think that it has to hurt in order to be helping, but with running, that's a counterproductive thing. So get out there, keep it easy. As we tell people that are starting in our programs, it should be conversational. You should be able to speak to whoever you're, you're with. If you happen to be joining the roads with, with somebody and Keep it comfortable and that way you'll be able to stay injury free and continue to do it for those full 30 days.
1: So many people think that walking is bad and I I will tell you walking as a part of a process of getting started running is important and essential and it's so easy. You just run until you're tired and then walk until you feel better. And then run a little bit longer until you're tired and then walk, set a time limit on the amount of time you want to be out in my suggestion, 30 minutes and call it a day and do that consistently. The consistency will be life changing.
0: And I should also mention that we have a couple of programs starting in January. If people are in Austin and want to check us out, we've got couch to 5k starting in January, which goes to January and February to get you to your first 5k We also are starting with that a couch to marathon program where basically over the course of the next 14 months, we'll get you to the Austin marathon 2018. So if you want to start a big journey, a 14 month journey, you can check that out on our website. And then also for those that might already be going a little bit longer, we have a spring half marathon program that starts in January as well. So if you need help, there's nothing better than getting a coach and a group that can hold you accountable. So come see us.
1: And if you liked this idea of trail running, we've got a trail running program that starts at the very end of January, hosted by uh, Mallory, the great and amazing Mallory Brooks, who will uh, be getting folks ready for our Royal Rogue Trail series, which was uh, one of Paul's key runs. Um, so think about that as well if you're looking at a trail transition.
0: So. Yep. And you can find out more on our website, roguerunning.com. For the trail series, roguetrailseries.com. You can also check us out on Facebook forward slash rogue Running, and on Instagram and Twitter at roguerunning. Thanks, Steve and Paul, for joining us. This is episode three of the Running Rogue podcast. Thank you all for listening. Happy New Year. We'll, we'll see you next time.